Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Christian Smart today, who is the chief scientist at Gallerith Federal, and his new book is called Solving for Project Risk Management. Christian also runs a blog called Smart Remarks and a podcast with Doug Hogworth uh, named Smart Remarks, Hogworth States. And before that, Christian was the cost chief at the Missile Defense Agency. So Christian, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Oh, thanks for having me on, Eric. You're welcome. So the book is terrific. The book is out and we're going to be dancing around a lot of those topics here today. But the first thing I want to start off with is give you a question about software cost estimating. So if work units like ESLOC and function points are used to estimate software, then what is used to estimate data projects such as for artificial intelligence and machine learning? That's a great question. I don't know that I have a fulsome answer, but I'd like to talk about it because that's a fantastic idea. It's kind of a big thought in a way because I don't think that when we do data projects, we tend to look at the scope in the same way. We tend to look at, oh, we got to do this work. Here's some money we throw at it, and then we try to get as much done as we can. The biggest part, it depends on if you have data or not. That's one of the, the key things. If you have to go out and collect data and then normalize the data, that's the biggest part of the project. That's from experience, probably that's probably 80-90% of the work that's involved. That's the problem that we have a trouble getting our hands around in terms of scope. Because some extent, there's a matter of you collect what you can get, and then you have some way to stop, and then you have to get the data cleaned up and get ready for it. analysis part, depending on using modern tools like um, R and Python, that could be you could look at what, the, what are the lines of code of that kind of thing. I guess the question is how do you count that? Like if you use R, using a lot of built-in libraries. So is that is that counted as auto-generated code in your ESLOC, or how is that counted kind of thing, which counts for something. But usually when you use R, you don't really make any changes to that. So there's really no debit to your lines of code count or using a, a built-in library. That's good. It's a great question. I don't know that we have a, a really good answer. When I've, when I've done these kinds of projects in the past, when I was the, the cost chief at Missile Defense Agency, we had a research group, and we adopted an agile approach to doing all kinds of research projects there. The kind of the, the sizing metric for that would have largely been story points. So that's what we'd use there. Yeah, it's interesting that you were bringing back the data piece into ESLOC, the source lines of code, or to try to use like story points. So use the software metrics that we're using today. But it seems like a lot of people are also dissatisfied with those metrics as a proxy for what work is actually involved and how to estimate those costs. But you, you said something actually pretty interesting in the book. And I want to get your view on this because it was just like a short sentence and I want you to expand on it. So you said the agile approach, quote, has potential to reduce costs, but the jury's still out on reducing risk. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, agile is highly touted right now and a lot of people are adopting it and, uh, and using that framework. And there's been some analysis done on agile projects and how it compares to costs. And it's kind of some mixed bag of, of the analysis that in terms of Maybe it decreases cost a little. It hasn't been, the, the results I've seen have not been statistically significant, but I think there's some potential there. Really, by taking an agile approach, are you really reducing risk? And that's the part I don't really see 
where is it that agile is reducing risk? They are breaking the work into smaller chunks. To some extent, there you know, is always a trade-off between cost, schedule, performance. So to some extent, it sounds like they're almost, to some extent in the short term, sacrificing performance to achieve a lower cost and a shorter schedule. So they're, they're working within that framework to try to achieve lower costs and shorter schedules, but are they sacrificing performance? Because to some extent, we're giving ourselves this amount of time, we're going to try to achieve this, this small goal, and maybe that's at a lower cost, but is that really offsetting the risk of the, of the overall broader picture, uh, the broader project? And I, that's, that's where I'm just struggling to see where how Agile really reduces risk. Maybe it's reducing risk a little by taking slightly lower performance to achieve shorter schedule and, and a lower cost, but I'm not really seeing how it's getting rid of the risks that are out there because there's a lot, of, a lot of the risks that are outside of the project. Whatever approach you adopt, you, you can't really offset those risks. Yeah, this is, this is an interesting discussion. So I want to actually get into this and I want to maybe push back on you a little bit. But first, we're talking about the risk of these projects. And one of the beliefs, and I want you to expand on this, and then I want to get into discussion. So one of the beliefs in the early 2000s, and you were highlighting this in your book, is that there was like a free lunch when you fund a portfolio of projects. Rather than the individual project, if I fund the portfolio project, I can get away with funding it to a lower confidence level because of something like a diversification effect. And that was like the belief that people had. And you devoted a good portion of your book to refuting that. So can you describe what the story was there and then what you were like getting at with your solution or your proposal? Sure. So the portfolio effect was the idea that, like you said, is the idea that you could achieve, for example, an overall 80% confidence level at the portfolio funding each individual project to a lower confidence level, such as a 60% confidence level. There was a report uh, that came out, I think it was the National Defense Council in the early 2000s that talked about the recurring problem of cost growth for uh, venture projects and advocated funding each individual project to an 80% confidence level, doing a risk analysis and then funding that to the 80% confidence level. There's two kind of key aspects there, even though Many defense branches do risk analysis, and Missile Defense Agency does risk analysis on all its projects. The CAPE still does not do risk analysis. It doesn't do cost risk analysis. So there's still there's this advocacy to, to do risk analysis, and then also you do the risk analysis, how does that inform your budget? And so they said, so you do the risk analysis and fund to an 80% confidence level. So there was a paper written that year or the next year that gave a simple example that showed if you were to fund 10 projects to a 62% confidence level, just a notional example, you would achieve an overall portfolio level confidence of 80%. So the idea was, if you fund each individual project to an 80% confidence level, you're going to be at an extremely high confidence level for the entire portfolio. So that's probably a bad idea. So they use this idea without actually adopting any sort of portfolio level analysis, just use the idea, that, okay, we can fund to lower levels. And many organizations, they said, okay, we'll fund to the 50% confidence level. That's problematic for multiple reasons, one of which is you're below the mean. So when you're below the mean, you're actually setting up a negative portfolio level. So that's one issue. The other is the the analysis that was done, the, the notional example was too simplistic. It was it didn't account for correlation between projects. It uh, didn't account for a realistic amount of risk, a couple of the issues with that. So once you accounted for that, pretty much that portfolio effect more or less went away. So here's my kind of like interpretation of the thing. When you're doing your cost risk analyses and you put them into a portfolio, so now I have multiple projects, I think the presumption is that 
cost growth for each project will follow some kind of distribution that's like log normal. So it's more like if there's an asymmetry, so you're more likely to have cost growth than you are to have cost decay or cost savings. Yes. So that's one of the issues with the distribution. And then when I put them into a portfolio, it's now more likely that I'll have one of these extremistan, right? From Nassim Taleb, we'll have the black swan and then that will be it higher. So like in order to fund that portfolio, I need a higher confidence level relative to the individual projects because now I have a bigger sample and that bigger sample is more likely to include an extremist stand cost growth. Is that kind of right right way of thinking about it? Yes, yes. So if everything is log normal, you will see some, you won't necessarily see a negative portfolio effect if you fund above the mean, but you won't really see much savings. But if there is one of those, you you do have a chance of having something in there where you have uncontrolled cost growth, which is one of those extreme stand events, then you, you can have a negative portfolio effect. Yeah. Even if you fund a high confidence level. So you could fund everything to an 8% confidence level and still be at an overall portfolio level confidence of less than 80% in such a case. I think this is where for me, it comes back to agile because I think, and, and you grappled with this in your book as well, but I think one of the points here is that when we have a portfolio of 10 projects, it's not like we're going to let all 10 projects run their entire waterfall course, and then we will experience those big cost growths. So I think some of it, and I think Nassim Taleb and, and then also Benoit Mandelbrot in the Anti-Fragile book, they're like, what's the best thing to do is diversify across all of your, if you have 10 projects, then your funding should be like one over 10 to each project or something like that, spread them. But I think some of their point was also like, you want to be able to fil- have a big filter. So before I get to the extremist stand cost growth, I should be, I should have cut that. And then, so now I'm left with an overall portfolio that like I've cut out the, the biggest losers, the ones that are like the black swans to me. And then I keep the other ones and that's how I move forward. And there was like this idea that you grappled with in your book that's what if you just had a 25% cost growth rule anything that grows over 25% I just cut it out that relates to me for agile because it's like it's a risk management procedure where you incrementalize these projects and then over time you can see where they're going and they're competing or whatever and you can make those trade-offs and make sure you don't get an extremist stand so that's like my version of risk management is just like making sure you you collect the the 10x or 100x gains and make sure you don't collect the 10x 100x cost growth. Yeah, that's a good point. So if it done right, you would say that agile basically would allow you to recognize the things that are not working and just cut those out or things that are not going well. That's a good point. I guess one of my things is we have let's just say we have a log normal uh, distribution on cost and schedule growth, but then right. the flip side of that equation is what is the benefit, right? And so the benefits, usually we think of it in the waterfall thing where it's just the benefit is defined and then we have a cost schedule distribution around getting to that singular benefit or specification. But if we also have like this, if we open it up a little bit and have this range of options in terms of performance outcomes, that might be, right? So if you have agile, it's more uncertain and more risky, but then the question is, is there an institutional process for getting rid of the bad guys and, and collecting the good guys such that you're really transforming right. yourself? So what if you have like a Pareto distribution or a wider distribution on your benefits relative to your costs? So you don't really worry as much about cost growth, right? Because like overall, your portfolio would be collecting the the big guys, the, the big game changers. 
Yeah, that, yeah, you wouldn't worry as much about cost growth or schedule delays. You would worry about performance, right? In that case, yeah, that, that would you would if performance were Pareto, then you would definitely uh, want to take performance as your driver. Unfortunately, project managers treat performance as Pareto, and everything else is secondary because they tend to focus exclusively on performance. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. So it's interesting because I I had Dan Ward on the podcast like uh, about a year ago now, and he was actually looking at these kind of cost growth rules. And it was just like, if you grow over 15 or 25%, just make that a rule. You didn't seem to come down on that side as much. And so do you see like where you and him might be like having a difference of opinions on whether you follow the cost growth rule or whether you like fund to the portfolio estimate that you would have uh, suggested? Yeah, so it's just a little bit hard because the the things that wind up, you know, having the biggest cost growth are often high priority projects. NASA, that would probably be one of those would be James Webb Space Telescope. Do you want to just get rid of James Webb Space Telescope and cancel it? Now, to some extent, they've already spent $10 billion on it. You shouldn't make your decisions based on sunk costs, a sunk cost fallacy, but you do want this next generation of space telescope to come out, successor to Hubble. And if NASA makes that their priority and that's what they decide to do, then I support that. It's just a matter of you need to have the reserves in place so that you don't wind up having these successions of delays and and then further cost growth caused by hitting funding constraints. Yeah, I believe I heard this a while ago, but I'm not really sure about it. There, I, I heard that NASA actually does have a portfolio. They'll like fund to the cost adjusted risk estimate, and then they'll take that slice between 70 and 50 for each project and put that into kind of like a central kind of like cost growth management fund. Is that is does that exist one for NASA and two, is that something that you see as being useful to projects? Yes, NASA does so NASA has basically there's two levels. They would for large projects, they would they would look at a, a joint seventy percent cost and schedule confidence level. So it's a little more stringent than just cost alone. And I think that's a good thing. So they would hold that internally and then they would give the project manager number. And then the contractor would come in and bid well below that. So they might sign a contract for a level below that. So that would be a a lower number. So there'd be two levels of reserves. One is the contractor would have a contract for, for, say, X. And then the project manager would would have some levels of his own reserves up to a 50% confidence level. Now, if the contractor blew through his contract and then it's cost, you know, typically cost plus contract, Although NASA is trying to make a human landing system a fixed price contract. So I think that's interesting. I'd like to get your thoughts on that, but for a large multi-billion dollar development contract. But so once you blow through that and you get to a 50% comps level, the project manager, you blew through that, then the project manager had to go back to NASA and say, hey, I need some more money. And they would have some reserves in place to offset additional growth. So that's not a bad way to, to go. It's, you know, it's, I think that's better than some organizations do. Still, you're still ignoring some of the, the really extreme risks that are out in the tail by, by looking at that. So you're not looking at those extreme risks. But I think that is a, a better practice than um, many organizations, I think, you know, especially like, like DOD. Yeah. So you were at the Missile Defense Agency, which actually is like separate and they have a, a little bit more control over what they're doing, their own, their, their own component. How could you implement this reserve budget, kind of what NASA is doing in the Department of Defense, where it seems like we fund directly to programs and having these kind of a lot of times Congress looks at them as slush funds for Department of Defense. I'm not really sure why or, or how NASA was able to get that authority. But 
how do you think about implementing that in the Department of Defense, or is that something that the DoD should really be looking at? I think so. Yeah, that is the that is the, uh, the issue is that money that's just sitting there. There's there are people that are going to want to use that. Congress people they have companies that work in their district, and they're if they see there's money sitting over here that's uh, not being used, they're they're going to want to try to get it to their constituencies. So there is that temptation. I think that is something that, that they should do. If you look at missile defense, missile defense would get a, an annual budget. In the past, it's been around $10 billion a year. And, and then they would have some authority on, on how to, to fund individual projects. And then there was actually some amount of director's reserve. Now, that's usually a very small amount, but there was some amount of director's reserve that he could apply to, to overruns. But there was some a small amount there. But yeah, I think, that w- I think that would be good if the services could get some authority to hold some reserves in place and have their own reserves. It is very tempting. It's, it's very hard to implement because, like you said, the Congress and other folks see that idle funds and they, they want to be able, they want to use them. And that's one of the weird incentives in DOD is to trying to spend your money as fast as you can, you know, rather than have reserves in place. I, I could imagine, like, the DOD, one, it depends on where these pots are. Is it, like, for each component has their own pot or is it, like, adjudicated at a higher level? And then you could imagine a lot of these guys like, oh, we want to do all these new starts with this funding. And then how does Congress feel about that? And and what would those processes be? I thought it was interesting that you brought up the fixed price NASA program, Artemis. So why did that interest you? What you're thinking, it's a develop, it's a big development program, billions of dollars. It should like fixed price seems weird for it. So why do you have a question there? It's just, you know, is NASA really... Or is a contractor really willing to sign up for uh, whatever the number winds up being? Let's just throw out $10 billion, just for example, say. Is NASA really willing to sign up for the $10 billion contract? Is a contractor really willing to sign up for a $10 billion contract if they if they think really it's probably going to cost, say, $15 billion? I'm making these numbers up. I have a little bit of insight into that because I've done some estimates for it, but I'm just making some numbers up. So. You know, if they really think it's $15 billion, are they really going to? And it is a competitive bid. So there's Dynetics, uh, Blue Origin, SpaceX, they're all bidding on this work. You know, you know, is the contractor willing to take that risk of eating um, potentially massive cost overruns um, by trying to establish a competitive bid? Is NASA willing to you know, really, does it NASA really think that they're willing to fight that fight? Now, on the other hand, if it, if they want to try to have a $10 billion contract, are they willing for the contractor to have a, 25% profit, for example, because that's the other side of fixed price contracts is what if, you know, they think it's going to be 10 billion, they sign a contract for 10 billion, but the contractor can do it for 8 billion, and then they make $2 billion in profit, and it's 25% profit. Is that a good thing to do? So there's kind of those two sides of it. <laughs> My reaction would be like, if they made, someone made 2 billion off of it, shouldn't that really encourage the competition to enter? But... <laughs> Oh yeah, no, and, and I, yeah. So it's a good question, and and I just don't. Given it's Dynetics, SpaceX, and Blue Origin, SpaceX is probably going to come in with a very low number. So is it? Can SpaceX execute? Maybe SpaceX can do things uh, cheaper than NASA traditionally, and they can do things faster. But can can they also meet the twenty twenty four goal too? To put people on the moon. <laughs> yeah, I just heard Elon Musk. Just recently, he he was claiming 2026 is the the date or the year for getting humans onto Mars. So, so must... on Mars, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty ambitious. <laughs> yeah, that that was my reaction too. I think one of the things that we've seen is that, and NASA actually admitted this, that SpaceX is doing things better and for cheaper than they could have done it without them. So, 
There's some, yes. I, and I think NASA's also, I guess my view on the fixed price is that first, the Artemis program doesn't really seem to have the same production and sustainment payoffs, right? Oh, I need to buy into this program because there's going to be these huge backend sole source things going right. on for me. But potentially Elon Musk might really be thinking like that too. Like I just need to be the first to build this huge moat in terms of space exploration. But, and that should be good from the taxpayer's point of view that he's going to be taking that risk. But I think the way right. that NASA actually approaches this, like when they first started doing business with SpaceX, they actually used another transaction and then they broke it down into milestone increments. So I'm not really sure what the structure, I, w- I would like to actually look into that. But if they can modularize the fixed price contract, it seems there are steps along the way where you could probably put that into a fixed price term and then you move along so you can know, okay, these guys are way behind. We can either like cancel this or restructure it at that point. So I think like when you break them, break down the contracts, they almost start looking a little bit more like a cost plus to some degree, but with like real test and evaluation pieces there. Yeah. My understanding is right now they're going to carry all three contractors through PDR and then get the fixed price bid at PDR. And then that's the, the rest of the contract down select from PDR. So one big contract so, after PDR to take them through literally landing on the moon. Yes. Yeah, that's gonna yes. be <laughs> that's gonna be a big experiment though. So I guess yeah. DOD should be yeah. watching, <laughs> see what happens. Yeah, no matter which way. When I was at Missile Defense, I noticed this that whatever happened, the contractor always wound up doing okay. You know, so it's it's a case of heads they win, you know, tails we the government would lose. Yeah, I was looking a while ago. I just I was just I took down all I dumped all the financials from a bunch of sectors and then I just categorized them by sector and I was just like, okay, when you look at defense, yes, they make about 10% profit on sales, but it's a constant. It's like very little volatility around that over time. It doesn't seem like they're going through the swings at, of a lot of the commercial markets where like retail and healthcare have these like very wide distributions in, in terms of returns. At our, at our own industry, you don't see the see the layoffs and that kind of thing. It's just, just fairly steady in terms of defense and aerospace. Which is also interesting because the very big winner-take-all type programs, at least within a company, it creates those mountains of ramp on and then ramp off onto these projects. And it's, it becomes very scary when you're looking at the, the edge of a cliff and you don't have another big program to backfill that. And so... I, th- I feel like that's also one of the reasons, right? You see a lot of these, you're like, first you have the funding to, to fill that up, but then the companies need that as well. So you get into those bidding wars. You do see that, you know, and companies do spend a lot of their own money in, in, in generating these bids. But on the other hand, they make it back up because then if they spend the money, so Lockheed built a building in Huntsville bidding on a contract years ago, spent their own money on that. They lost the contract, but then the, that cost wound up going into their overhead, which they then charged on other government contracts. So they wound up getting paid back for it in, in you know, certain senses. All legal, DCMA, DCAA, had no issues with it. It's just they're, just, they're, they're not doing anything. They're just, they're just working the system. Yeah, and you would expect that when you, I think a lot of the companies, the, the big primes, they have that advantage because they have a big portfolio of programs that they can smear these things across and they can, like Boeing, for example, has a big portfolio. They have a lot more commercial business. So they're more willing to take some of those hits in the near term. And right. even if they do, like any kind of, for a Lockheed Martin, 100% of its business pretty much is government. So those costs have to be just like reimbursed somewhere or else like it just <laughs> right. has to happen. Yeah. 
So I wanted to stick with NASA for a second because you were pretty critical of NASA's uh, better, cheaper, faster program that they had in the, the 90s and maybe into the early mm -hmm. 2000s. So can you just explain what was NASA doing and then what was your critique? NASA, to their credit, then they were uh, boxed into a certain problem because they uh, costs were increasing, systems were getting more expensive, uh, the budget was getting flat, and so something had to give, right? There, you can't, it's an unsustainable trend. And so they had to do something, and so in, in around 92 uh, or 93, when Bill Clinton took office and Dan Golden took over as uh, the NASA administrator, he decided he was going to do things uh, cheaper. and with a goal of trying to get more done for less. And so the problem with that is that they took on a lot of technical risk. One of the, I talked about the trade-off between cost, schedule, performance, and NASA, for most of its life, has tended to focus on performance, exclusive to cost and schedule. At that time, they went the other way. They focused on cost and schedule, disclosure performance. That led to several, quite a few failures. Aerospace built a model that showed that. That resulted in many more failures. I developed a model that kind of showed that trade-off, showed that you would wind up with more failures based on that. The problem was they didn't really look at the, the, the analysis up front to see what the interrelationship was between cost, schedule, and performance, and try to trade those off. I think they, that NASA and other organizations should try to trade those off. Is that there was an initiative called CAVE, Cost as Independent Variable, years ago that kind of has fallen by the wayside. That kind of looked at that trade-off, cost, schedule, and performance. But you got to do the analysis up front. You can't just simply say. We're going to do this for less, and then you wind up taking more technical risk as a result. NASA wound up bouncing one spacecraft off the atmosphere of Mars and off into deep space, and then uh, there was supposed to be an orbiter for Mars, and then embedded another one in the Martian uh, soil that was supposed to be a, a lander. It's going to be on the polar lander. There's a couple of uh, high-profile failures where they just tried to do things too fast and, and, uh, and too cheaply. Yeah, I'm wondering, is... I don't know enough about the whole subject, but I guess some of it is like we've been hearing from leadership that you want to fail more often so that you can succeed. And so it's what's I just don't know what the balance of that is, because I, I feel like there could be a benefit to that if you're like you implement these rules, no big cost growth. Let's do things cheaper, faster. And then a lot of things fail, but some things like really succeed. And, and then you get into this do loop that you're like growing the winners and, and making sure the losers stay away. But then there's also that trade-off where it's, where, where is that line? Because it's not necessarily always true that the winners will be more important than the losers. So like when the losers start stacking up, then it's a real problem. So I guess yeah. that's like the, the trade-off there is just where was NASA? So you think NASA was closer to the side where the winners weren't really compensating for the losers overall to the status quo of making sure you define your risk up front. Yeah, there were two kinds of the uh, some of the bigger projects that didn't, you know, they were just, they were forced into a box of taking on more technical risk. So it was more failure. And I don't think that overall it wound up paying for itself. The other side of that is that some of the, the centers, like Goddard Space Flight Center that I was supporting at the time, they shifted a little bit by, by doing more very small single instrument satellites so that they could stay within the box of cost and performance. But then you lose out on economies of scale by having a single platform that have multiple instruments. So you wind up making, it's not a very cost-effective way to achieve science objectives. You have a big platform that has multiple instruments. So there's got to be some sort of economies of scale. That's another thing that NASA didn't really look at was where is the right balance in terms of, yeah, what is the right balance between uh, the, the cost and the schedule and the performance? 
and, and how much technical risk should we take on? It's just something that's not done up front. I, I developed a tool that kind of looked at with, with kind of a logistic regression model that would say, hey, this if you have this balance of cost, schedule, performance up front, you have about a 90, you know, 90% chance or an 80% chance of succeeding. And you can look at that trade-off and so trying to stay within the box. So Goddard would use that model when they would evaluate a new mission to see is our cost, schedule, performance in the box in order to achieve their objectives. So you don't want to have these extreme kind of problems where you're pushing, you're trying to do too much technical capability, but you constrain the cost and then that creates these trade-offs and these problems. You also said in your book that if cost growth was more extreme than log normal, a point estimate would be useless. And so what makes a point estimate useless? And then like when I'm thinking about actually making programmatic decisions, I can't operate with a range. I have to choose a number. Can you explain uh, that breakdown a little bit? What did you mean by if it's more than log normal, a point estimate is useless? And then like, how do you relate the cost range of outcomes to a point estimate in actual decisions? Okay, it's great. Yeah, it's great. Uh, great question. So if you look at you're more extreme than log normal, so you look at something that is extremely heavy tail as a Pareto type distribution that Nassim Taleb talks about, these these uh, denizens of Extremistan, these projects have really extreme outcomes, then then there really is no there really is no variance. If you get really beyond that, then there's really no there's really no mean. There's, there's, there's no defined mean. It's sometimes they call it infinite. You know, we live in a finite world. If you look at these distributions, they suggest that there is an infinite mean and infinite variance. So examples of that are the number of deaths due to pandemics, applicable to what's going on right now. Uh, that's if you model, if you look at the um, history of that, and you model that, you'll see that they have an infinite suggests an infinite mean, infinite variance. It, if you look at the, the fluctuations in the stock market, things are going up right now. We look at the fluctuations in financial prices. It suggests an infinite mean, infinite variance type of uh, model. Sometimes, uh, definitely infinite variance depends on the, the product. It could be a finite mean. So if you get into the, the realm of infinite mean, infinite variance, there's no sample. Mean so any, any sample that you look at, it's not indicative of an underlying population mean because there is no population mean. Because when we try to collect statistics and we look at, say, for example, cost growth, if things were really in the extremist stand, whatever cost growth number we came up with as an average would not really be indicative of what the overall population mean was because there's not one. So there's so point estimates are relatively meaningless in the sense if you're trying to estimate a mean, you can't really do it. So if you look at regression, if you were to look at traditional linear regression. Linear regression is aligned through the mean, and that, so that doesn't really that doesn't have a, a it's not meaningful in that case because whatever you're doing is not indicative of what's going on in the entire population. So there are ways of getting around that. You can look at extreme value theory as one way to handle uh, extreme statistics, and so then you would you know wind up looking at something like a, uh, a percentile of the distribution instead, and you'd fund to that. Or you could look at some sort of risk measure around that. So you you come up with a distribution, and you can still come up with a, a budget that be based on a risk measure. And you can do that for the project, or you could do a portfolio analysis and then do it in the entire portfolio, and then allocate the, the reserves back to individual projects. In the pandemic, where you could have these extreme outcomes where everybody dies, and it's like that's the most extreme outcome, and you're just trying to say, okay, what's the impact of this next? of this next virus that comes out or disease is I don't really know. It, it could be way out there and that might be very unlikely, but that's just going to skew everything that's in my statistics. And so it becomes uncertain. And I guess the project management point of view of that would almost be like, 
I have a project. It's very high priority and it's a big project. And then it starts growing and I let it grow. And then now it takes up the entire budget I have. And now I'm going into debt. And now it's like consuming everything I have and it kills me. And to some extent, James Webb, you can argue James Webb Space Telescope is like that because it was called the, uh, the telescope that ate astronomy because it ate up the entire budget for astronomy projects at NASA for a while. When I think of Nassim Taleb and how he talks about pandemics, I guess like in that situation, what he was, I think one of his things was like, okay, you need to have a robust rule in terms of protocols that you will enact to make sure you never get to that super extreme thing. The one thing, your risk management strategy is never to have that extreme thing. And so does that not translate to project management? And is that not something like a cost growth rule? No matter what, we can't make this thing get so big that it consumes us. And then we're left with this one capability even if it's a sweet capability, it just ruined us. What yeah, so the that? precautionary principle, and Talib was right in saying we need to not just react, but it would look like overreaction. And yeah, that would be basically, and I don't know if you're familiar with Bent Fluberg, the, the Oxford professor that, right, he calls it cutting the tail. You know, you cut the tail off. So you would uh, basically, you would cut the tail, and that would basically, you know, you grow more than a certain amount, you would wind up cutting, canceling the project, stopping it. So that's one way to cut that fat tail, get rid of that fat tail, is to cut it. The other thing is up front, pretty much everyone, cost estimators knew that James Webb Space Telescope would be expensive, but NASA management insisted it would be a billion dollars. You know, if more risk management practices were in place up front, they would have, and if NASA administrators had been willing to listen to the cost estimators, they would realize that this is a multi-billion dollar project, not a single, you know, one billion dollar project. So, you know, that upfront planning and having those practices in place and having some discipline in establishing budgets would help with that as well. But yeah, there's... But cutting the tail, that's one thing. So once you've started the project, you realize this is way more expensive than what we originally thought. Actually, just canceling the project and starting over or doing something else is, is one way to handle that. And that would be the, the correlate. That is the way to to, uh, to cut the tail. One of that is the – and from Ben – I always get his name kind of pronounced it wrong. I always say Ben Fliveberg, but Brent, how do you say it? I think it's a, a Fluberg. I, I, uh, I actually looked it up to see how he pronounced it. But one of the things that he also talks about is you want to break down a project as much as you can to smaller projects where possible. And some things like maybe a massive suspension bridge is very hard to do that. But in most cases, you really want to do that and modularize. So like when I think of James Webb, could they have de-risked that by decomposing it and doing some parts of it to experiment up front? Maybe not. But I think overall, I don't see the value necessary of always these economies of scale. Because you were also talking about, and that's what I was wanting to talk about before on the better, cheaper, faster. Sure. You said on the satellite, there's got to be economies of scale. But what it looks like, SDA is moving towards the Space Development Agency. They're going for a proliferated architecture. And that's what the commercial industry is moving towards, too. And so that's what worries me sometimes about the interaction between cost estimating and project technical decision making because it's like if i need the cost estimate then usually those are the things that i've done in the past and so your cost estimate and your project will look like something that came in the past and that might not be optimal for one reason or another if you could do it in a different way or if you tried it out differently you might see different economies because just thinking about like a lot of <laughs> some of the cost estimating models for space are just the bigger it is the more expensive it's going to be but ultimately i want to get as much sensor capability on something as small as possible. So shouldn't the smaller it is, like the more expensive it would be. But there's just like these kind of weird, like logical loops. I feel like when I do 
like a cost estimating relationship, for example? If you look at those kinds of satellites, so if you look at the legacy, the, the historical standard is these very large, expensive satellites up in MEO or, or even GEO. So those are very expensive, billion-dollar-plus satellites. They're actually able to, with recent advances, they're able to put up very small, inexpensive satellites, like in the $5 million range, and you put up 500 of those. It still winds up being quite a bit of, still quite a bit of money, but they, one thing is you don't have to worry about an anti-satellite program shooting down your one big satellite in MEO. So you do have harder to kill the entire constellation when you have more of them. So there is a, there is a trade-off in terms of the defense strategy as well. And by, by going to the really small, low level, though, you do, it's like they, they, do get, they do get pretty cheap and you can launch a whole lot of them at one time. So uh, it is potentially a way to, to save some money, but it's not only just in saving money, it's also in terms of trying to achieve a reliable satellite network as well. Yeah, definitely. So I guess sticking to a similar topic, you brought up Norman Augustine, and I guess he, he also reviewed your book, which is pretty cool. One of Augustine's famous laws was basically that, like he was projecting from 1984, that if you just follow the trajectory of fighter aircraft procurement costs per unit, if you just extrapolate that line into the future by 2034, 2054, it would be the size, like one aircraft would cost the size of the defense budget, and then it would like surpass gross domestic product overall 100 years later. But there was actually an interesting um, article this year from ICEA, the International Cost Estimating and Analysis Association, from Brent Johnstone. And he basically was like, hey, look, Augustine's law broke down. Augustine would have thought that using that statistic in 2020 today, fighter aircraft would cost about a billion dollars. And it's about a tenth of that, right? Like an F-35 is about, let's just call it $100 million. What happened to Augustine's law and what do you think that says about using historical cost data to project future costs? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So yeah, so I guess that's he, Augustine's book, Augustine's Laws, consists of 52 laws. And so law, this is the one you're talking about is Law 16, which is probably his, arguably his most famous law. It's often quoted. Yeah, and so in the year 2054, he, he said that it would consume the entire budget. And he also, interestingly, he said that the, uh, the aircraft would be shared, so the, the Air Force and the Navy would, would have the aircraft three and a half days a week apiece. <laughs> and then on leap year, the Marines would have it on leap day. <laughs> so it's presaging, I guess, joint strike fighter in a way. I don't know. But that didn't turn out to be the case. Like you said, it's only about $100 billion in, in terms of a unit cost. And Johnstone looked at what Augustine had done. Augustine has some really interesting analysis. Back at that time, that was the kind of analytics he did that's in his book was really ahead of his time. We think about the late 70s, early 80s when he was writing that. No one else was really you know, doing that. But it wasn't clear in terms of what Augustine was looking at. It wasn't clear what kind of unit cost he was looking at. Was it a flyaway cost? Is it, a, is it APUC, just a procurement cost? Is it, uh, is it rolling the development cost? So it wasn't clear. He didn't really normalize for the units. Did you think it's just like a total sort of total cost? Somehow he, he got some kind of unit cost, but it's not really clear how he got it. He was also using then-year dollars. There was no accounting for inflation. And then one of the things that happened in the you know, 60s and 70s was high inflation rates, and that's since ameliorated quite a bit. So that's a factor. It's, it's, it was really extrapolating from an unreasonable trend. He was like looking at the early 80s and then extrapolating out to 2054. So way outside of historical experience. So he was uh, really way out there. So it's you gotta be careful about how far you extrapolate. It's almost like it more of a more that little chart was more futurism than forecast. <laughs> 
So you're saying that using historical data, I would be able to better estimate something that's coming up like right now. But if you're trying to be like, all right, I'm going to use an F4 and an F14 and an F15 data to like project what the next generation air dominance is going to be many years later. And then I just have this huge index in between. That's just not going to cut it. So you can't extrapolate that far. I mean, just you're stepping way too out, way too far in the future. So what Brad Johnstone did find though, was that it, it did, it does increase on a yearly basis up to around 4.4% per year, that, that, that unit cost of an aircraft over time. So there was a trend. It was much lower than what Augustine was projecting. Some of his stuff is a little bit tongue in cheek. So he, you know, but, but he does have a lot of wisdom in a lot of the, his writings. And I, I do, I did find in my research that I, I wound up rediscovering a lot of things that he had said, like average cost growth development programs, 50%. So multiple projects tend to indicate that does indicate that there is a sort of a reliable mean potentially for, for cost and that we can do some point estimates, but it's so have to be a little careful. But so there, so he does have a lot of interesting things like that about the more you produce, the less you get. And that's the problem of too, too many projects at the same time. He, a lot of things like that. Another thing that, that some, some things somewhat underappreciated was, was that the, the production rate of these systems is so low that we're reaching an uneconomical point in defense where basically not everyone's gainfully employed producing these products all the time. They're, they're standing around having to do some sort of training or do something else because the production rate is low. Yeah, I think I was looking back at like the F-16, the first, I think it's first year of production, something like 1976, 77, they had 180 units and and they were like consistently well above 100 every year. And it's just JSF. It took, it took them five, like seven, eight years to get to something even close to that. Yeah. Actually, when you look at just like the annual, like what's the the cost per unit in each year in for the Joint Strike Fighter, it looks like it's coming down a lot, but that's because a lot of the learning curve is being spread out over that time, whereas most of the learning was actually done in like the first year or two of the F-16 because they were able to just pound out so much. So it just started from a lower level and it didn't look like it was going down as much. But the performance overall, like the actual learning curves that they were experiencing were actually relatively similar. So there's just like an optical effect between the difference in production rates and what that looks makes the price look like over time. Yeah, so Augustine didn't account for anything like that. He didn't, what Johnstone did, you know, correctly was... He normalized everything to a T100, the hundredth unit. There's, it's not clear what what Augustine was doing with with that, but yeah, yeah. So it was because of Johnstone's paper. I thought well, maybe I could get Augustine to review my book because I cite him several times, and so I asked him because he actually in the paper he says this graph reproduced with permission of the author. So I said he must have Augustine's email address. So I reached out to him, and he said, yeah, he still has a Lockheed Martin because Brett is a uh, Lockheed employee. He said, yeah, Augustine still has a Lockheed email address, and he answers it. So I emailed him and sent him a galley of the book, and he, he endorsed the book. So it's an endorsement that's in, on the back cover of the book. That was kind I, of neat. He's 80, 85 years old. I guess he's still going strong. <laughs> that thing was that Augustine said you alluded to was that this, the schedules for these developing these aircraft was pretty cons- consistent around an average around three years, but it took a lot longer to develop JSF. Yeah, that's and I just saw a paper out recently that was claiming that the the time between milestone B and IOC has actually been pretty constant over time since the 60s. And I just don't believe it. I think there's just too much going on in terms of what do we what does a milestone B versus an IOC actually mean in those different times? I just want to stick with the Augustine law for one more second. Sure. And this is some of the difference, I think, of accounting over time 
and the difference isn't and why it's hard to use cost because it's like it's easy to measure the costs but then a lot of these times like when we're looking at those unit costs jsf costs 100 million but that's like excluding the the spreading of the rdt and e costs the research and development mod costs and what's happening in the operations and su support area and then when you're actually getting capability and the, was it the capability you thought? So I guess like when I'm looking at Augustine's chart and just like looking at this this growth in terms of cost per aircraft, it's what's going on underneath that? I think that we're often, we do a decent job tracking costs and, and schedule, but then it's hard to relate that to performance. And when we do, it's just what's the correlation between cost and performance al along this trajectory? But yeah, so <laughs> I don't know if you had anything to say there in terms of just like the completeness yeah. of these analyses. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it's hard to get your hands around it. Like in missile defense, cost per kill was a, was a pretty good you know, way to relate cost and performance, what is, which is taking into account both the, the cost of the missile and then the probability of the missile shooting down another missile. You can There are some ways to, to quantify it. People you get in kind of a murky area when you start using trying to mix qualitative and quantitative, and a lot of performance is qualitative, so you have to be careful about that. But there are some hard numbers that you can get your hands around. Missiles, for example, cost per kill is one way to look at that. So the last thing I want to touch on with Augustine, you highlighted the the Las Vegas factor of development program planning, which is like 50 development programs are likely to grow to 52%. And you advocated in your book for something like uh, growth factors. And I think Bent Fleivberg or Fluvberg, he also says the same thing, right? It's like, I have this big historical database of costs and on, on average projects that look like yours grow, let's just say 30%. So whatever the cost estimator comes out with, let's put 30% on it. And now we call it like the risk adjusted. And, and that's what we should go with the funding for, even if that's not what we're trying to target the cost for, but we should recognize that we probably need to put that amount of money aside. But then I'm also wondering, what if I'm just like, I read everything that Christian Smart does and I understand these pitfalls and I do a correct integrated cost schedule analysis and my output is like the 70th or whatever percentile cost estimate from that. And here's my cost estimate. Why there's almost like some kind of willpower versus like, you know, what's, can I actually get away from that 52% cost growth? Is every estimator biased in the same way? Or like what happens when Christian Smart produces a cost estimate? I should not use that cost, that 52% factor. Well, you have to be careful. I mean, yes, yeah, so that's a good that's a good wrinkle. The key is, uh, if you're doing, the, is the estimate an independent estimate or is it, or are you working for the project? If you're working for the project, then, then your inputs are going to be biased by the optimism of the project manager. So even if you have the best model in the world, if your inputs are low and your cost is going to be low. So you have to be have to be careful about that. So it's, you, got, you got to look and see how much optimism is in there and take a look. We did work on the Constellation program years ago and the cost risk analysis for Aries 1, which, you know, Norm Augustine helped cancel that program in around 2009, 2010. And uh, our initial estimates were very low. When you looked at independent analysis that was done, they were more realistic around the same time. So, and, and their S-curve actually matched up to the final budget, whereas ours did not. But we were influenced by the project management optimism. They made a lot of assumptions that, that weren't realistic once we started getting into the details. Yeah, I, it, it's hard for me sometimes to, like, discern between that because sometimes I, I i feel like i want my project managers to be like we're going to do something new we're going to be optimistic like at a startup you can't be recruiting people and having an entrepreneur like not being an evangelist thinking like i'm going to go change the world so they have to have that mindset and then i guess there's also you're in a government bureaucracy you're not necessarily taking the risks 
on your own self. And so there has to be like this oversight and in terms of realism and making sure the whole system actually works out. So do you, do you have any views about that? Like we almost want the program offices to be like that. Right? We want to be success oriented, right? Yeah. I was talking to Doug Howarth and I had a podcast with uh, Bella Vacqua who worked at the Skunk Works for a long time. And he's on the Guggenheim Worm. He designed the propulsion system for the JSF. And one of his, one of the things he said was that, and Skunk Works is known for doing things quickly and relatively cheaply. And he said their motto was one miracle per program. If you look at a lot of the programs that have a lot of cost growth, you know, they require multiple miracles. J, JWST required, you know, required multiple technological advances. So you want to challenge people, but you also, you want to set some realistic limits on what you're going to try to do with the project. If you want to be able to challenge yourself and succeed, projects just try to take on too much. So there's optimism, but it needs to be tempered a little bit with some amount of reality. So I know I agree. You want optimism, you want stretch goals, you want people to, to work hard to do things quicker and cheaper. But in many cases, like you said, these project managers don't have skin in the game. They're they're not the ones that are suffering as a result of cost growth and schedule delays. It's other projects that wind up paying that price. Sometimes like you look at military leaders. So a lot of these project managers are military leaders, colonels, generals. You know, They're only around for two or three years before they, they so the way the system works is they, they rotate in and out. So they're not around to see the end of the program. Actually, when I think about like the Skunk Works, for example, the F-117, that prototype, like all they did was like the airframe. They took like the the landing system from a C-130, the fly-by-wire from the F-16, and they just high TRL stuff for everything that's not what they're making the miracle on, which is just the airframe. Yeah, I feel like a lot more that kind of thinking needs to be done. And I think that's where some of the agile process, I think, comes in and breaking down these things. So I'm not estimating out a 10-year-long development program where I have all these miracles, right? Like, I'm really just focused. I have high TRL stuff. I know the cost of those things because there's been other projects and hopefully other cost estimators on those. So there's data on that. And then I'm really like constraining where my uncertainty is. And hopefully that speeds everything up and I actually get to higher technical end states faster than if I tried to do it all in one big bang. I guess Skunk Works was agile before it was agile. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Department of Defense just had those things built into it. They just didn't know how effective their management really was. And they're like throwing out the good for the hope of the perfect. Oh, we can perfect this portfolio and these programs. And maybe that just <laughs> didn't work out. But I, I wanted to, there was something actually interesting that you uh, brought up in your book that I actually think gets to this distinction between how things were done in the past and how things are done now. And that was the idea that cost growth equals the square root of the number of lead organizations involved in the project. So that's if I have two lead organizations that are cooperating on, on a single like major project, then I'll get whatever the square root of two, that's my factor growth. And as I add more organizations, I can expect more and more cost growth out of it. And I think that kind of aligns with how the Department of Defense shifted itself, right? Because back in the 40s and the 50s, if I wanted to accomplish a major program, I had these different organizations. They all had their own budgets and they all had to like coordinate themselves. For example, an aircraft carrier, you had to do Bureau of Ships would build the ship, Bureau of Ordnance would build the ordnance parts, and then you had the Bureau of Aeronautics and other organizations potentially all involved in this one project. And that would, we would expect it to lead to cost growth. And then they moved over 
to a lead systems, like one program office, one lead systems integrator, every aspect of a project should be under the hands of one guy and fund him to go do that program. And that's where we are now. And it seems like this has actually led to now the problem is stovepipes and interoperability. I've, now that I've created all these systems that are under one leader, maybe that did reduce cost growth and I was able to get some efficiencies out of that. But then it seemed like the networking between them was kind of the expense. So that was at like the higher enterprise level that now I'm going to have to see this cost growth and you're starting to see the services tackle that. So how do you reconcile this need for kind of like product project leadership to make sure you're not getting too much cost growth and there's like a single vision versus enabling the enterprise services and tools and the joint force networking? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the issues, one of the things that they have in military, when you go into battle, you have to have a single chain of command, what they call a unified chain of command. Otherwise, people are going to get killed. So you've got to have one one boss tells you what to do, and you do do what he says. And so the and the services, to some extent, have kind of adopted that approach over time too. The, the you want a unified chain of command or a single chain of command. You don't want multiple people telling you what to do. So that's the the beauty of that is it does cut down on some of that some of that complexity of having multiple project managers. You look at historically one of the worst examples of cost growth was the Sydney Opera House. There was no single project manager. It was a kind of sort of for a long time it was a collaboration between the architect and the construction team having a single chain command does help with that and does simplify things but like you said it does stovepipe things one of the things that, that the way the missile defense agency was organized i think that might help with this is there was a hybrid structure so you think about there's in terms of management there's a matrix structure where so for example as the cost director for a matrix structure i would matrix my employees out to programs but then i would have no say over what they did so if they worked for the, the THAD program office, then THAD program protector would tell them what to do, and I would have no influence. The other option would be they could, they could be totally functional. They could, they could work for me. They could do some work for the THAD project manager. He, but he told them what to If he tried to tell them something to do, they didn't have to do it. They, they'd have to do what I told them to do or, or one of my employees told them to do. But MDA was a balance of the two, kind of a hybrid approach where you have a functional chain of command and a matrix chain of command. So it's uh, creates some, something of a tension. So there was always some tension between the functional chain of command and the, um, the project chain of command, but but you do get the insight across the organizations when you do it that way. They would so the someone would work for the THAD program office, and but then they would whatever they did, they'd also have to report to their functional chain of command and to do with their functional. It had to be an agreement between the functional chain of command and the program chain of command, what they did before they can go forward. And that does slow things down a little bit, but. You do get concurrence and you do get insight across the, the functional organizations that need to have insight into specific areas. So yeah. is that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that makes complete sense. Like like the foundations after World War II of defense organization was that like single chain of command hierarchy where everyone has a single boss. And that quickly fell apart because they were claiming that the functionals didn't have enough say and there wasn't enough coordination and you have these assistant secretaries of defense that actually started popping up in the 50s for each functional. And they would actually, since they're assistant secretaries of defense, they didn't have any line power or over the functionals, but they had to go like up through the secretary of defense or at the service level up through like serv- the, the headquarters at, or the secretary for the service in order to get anything done. And so it, eventually it just DDR and e, you're going to have 
line control over the research and development programs. And then you started to see some of the growth of that. But I think what you're saying in MDA is there's a true within that component kind of functional organization. So you have leaders for like cost, potentially financial management, life cycle, um, sustainment, each one of those functionals they would like control their workforce, but they would matrix them out. So once they went to a project, they didn't have control, but they would still have to report. So they literally did have two bosses, the project manager and then the, the functional lead. Interesting. Right. And the, the, the functionals review the work. And, and then also any major, like anything that would come up with in terms of cost. To the, so the THAAD program office said, we're going to spend $100 million on this test. Then they had to come to me for concurrence. I had to sign off on it before they could budget it. So I guess some of that, that's, let's just say like each one of these functionals has like a responsibility to the enterprise, right? So the cost person has a responsibility to make sure that there's enough budget available such that each of these programs can succeed. Like potentially the systems engineering guy has a responsibility to make sure that each of the systems networks with the ground architecture. And eventually I'm the program manager, I'm trying to execute this program, but each of my functional areas has a different boss and a different objective, and I'm trying to do something else, but it has to force fit in there. So it's going back against the idea of a unity of command, but then it also is getting towards that idea of you have to negotiate between each of those stakeholder interests. So you're bringing a lot more stakeholder interest into it to in order to get that networking and interoperability, but then you're sacrificing something on your program manager side and that's just the reality of it. You can't have it both ways, right? That's right. Yep. That's right. So they can't say, oh, we're going to spend $50 million to do the test. If I say, no, it's really going to cost $100 million. Yeah. So with the services, let's just look at the cost <laughs> functional because that's kind of where we're at right now. And, and maybe they're pretty related with the, the financial management. So business FM and business CE. But you said in your book that of like an optimal profile for expenditures for each program. And the problem is maybe that goes up pretty high and I need to start burning a lot of people optimally to get this program done. But then when I have a portfolio of programs and now they have budget constraints and potentially I have to like chop off the top, you have to go for longer and you don't ramp up as much. And that creates like a problem in terms of optimizing the portfolio. So each project's actually taking longer and costing more than it should if I just knew that and I budgeted for it correctly. So are the services, are you, is that kind of just like a general proposition that you said, or do you think that like the services in the Department of Defense are actually trying to pack too many programs into the budget and they're actually getting into this kind of funding constraint where they're not able to execute the programs to the level that efficiency would dictate? Yes, I think that's the case. I, I, I saw this in Missile Defense Agency. I've got some scattering of, of evidence of that, anecdotal evidence and other services. I saw it happen quite a bit at Missile Defense Agency. Norm Augustine talks about it a little bit in his book. I think it's a fairly, fairly common phenomenon. But it, So, for example, at a time when Missile Defense Agency, the budget was actually declining and then projects were a little bit constrained, the organization decided to try to embark on a new project. So it's, why are you doing that? Because we already, budgets being cut, no projects were going away, nothing was getting canceled. And then they're trying to start a new, major new initiative to develop a new missile program. And actually that required an independent estimate from uh, the CAPE. And then the CAPE recommended that the program get canceled and they wound up canceling the program as a result. So it happened a couple of times. There were a couple of projects that got canceled like that. And 
that was wisely they were wisely canceled because really it was adding too much to the budget trying to do too much with a limited amount of resources and um so it's just it's kind of just because the organization was not looking at the whole portfolio and, and how much are things costing and looking at the whole sort of like a sand chart of, of what is where where are all the projects fit within the colors of sand and where is the budget and you know, are we had this new project in and five years from now we're going to be running out of money you know, they don't, the organizations often don't look at that now by the time i left mda our group was looking at that for an entire organization to, and looking at the future years planning out through around 10 15 years to see how potential new programs would fit within the total portfolio in terms of you know, are we going to wind up we started a project this year we're already at near our budget ceiling two three years from now we're going to be having to delay other projects because the ramp up will require us to hit a funding constraint and then require to delay other things. And the other thing that you also see, you wind up inefficiencies. You mentioned production. You wind up with inefficiencies in production because organizations will say, I want us to spend more money on developing this new capability, so I'll cut production in, in out years. You can't do that in the year of execution because of the different colors of money, but in future years planning, you can trade some of that in and out and you can cut the production quantities to pay for uh, research and development. So organizations would do that too. And then you, you cut the production, then you're, you're achieving less efficiencies in production and the cost of each individual item that you're producing winds up costing more as a result. So you're also losing from that perspective as well. Yeah, I think that's, and Chuck Spinney had a great report on that about just like looking at the future years defense program and being like, every program wants to do something like this and then they're all just getting extended out and and reducing quantities and yet as he just said like when you do that you get less efficiencies from rate effect and from learning curves and all that and spreading overhead and so that really jacks up and i think that's a lot of the problem with with those trade-offs because once you have a program and it's going to go that way and you say there's other these other priorities we want to take money from you and then they come back and say, you take out 10% of my budget, I'm going to have to get like 20 or 30% less product out of that because of those effects. And we had been planning to this thing and everyone was, that was our shelling point. So now we got to bite the apple and that, and that seems to lead to a lot of like inter-program squabbling. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you saw this too, with the, there were a couple of initiatives to try to do multi-year procurements on a couple of projects when I was there and they wound up getting squashed to some extent because in one case the contractor was very interested in that but that would basically tie the hands of the government in terms of okay if we had to buy 30 or 40 or 50 of these missiles a year we're going to commit to this production budget for the next five years and they won't have they wouldn't have the the wiggle room to try to take money from that to spending on something else but that would have saved them a lot of money the multi-year has potential to save quite a bit of money but yeah, I always go back and forth on, on those prospects because you lose optionality when you do that. And then you're potentially locking yourself into a suboptimal outcome in terms of what the program is and what and, and now that contributes to the force structure. If you just like lock in this plan and say five years from now, we're still going to be by the same baseline specification of this thing. And potentially we rushed it through testing. So we're, we might have to go back and do some mods oh, or fixes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And then in this particular missile, it, it, it was late to mature. They had a lot of technical issues. It was relatively late to mature. So that is a good point because when, once you do that, you're basically locking in that design for the next five years. You can't make any changes. I want to get, actually get your view on something real quick because I always think of it would be nice to have the separation of R&D from procurement. So like those decisions seem very different. One is very uncertain, lots of risk. And the other one, 
I can more use these um, analytical techniques to say, okay, I know what the costs are going to be and what the outcomes are and how they fit in. So I can go into that. And I think the, the more you break that apart and you're not in these kind of like concurrent situations, then you can say the MYP makes sense here because I know what I'm getting. But then there's also this idea, I think that like Elon Musk, for example, with Starlink, he's like actually going through concurrency. He says you have to do concurrency so that you learn in production. You learn what designs are most producible because production is much harder than development and you have to get, get that right together. And and then there's also the kind of point from DevSecOps, right? For software, you're never done. You're always simultaneously in development and production. How do you walk that line? How do you think about um, that from a cost estimating perspective or just a pro project management perspective? Do, do we want to separate those things out? Should they be like a bright line between R&D and production or operations? Or should like they basically be like merged together? The problem is, and you see this over and over again, is that projects start trying to produce before they even have a design or have a design complete. Um, it does wind up increasing risk. GAO consistently points out issues with concurrency as a major source of risk. And so it's a problem that projects set upon themselves by trying to do things too quickly. So it's, it's, I guess there's a fine line between those two things. But I think for like big projects, big weapon systems, things that are complex, you, you want to have the design straightened out before you start building it. And you wind up entering a vicious cycle. I've seen this happen. The Missile Defense Agency, for one project I won't name, it, it, the, the, the missile having technical issues, if they had just stopped taking the time to iron out the design up front and, and stop the production, I think it would have wound up saving money in the long run. It, just, it, it depends somewhat on the context, but I think for complex systems, getting the design before you start producing, it saves money. Yeah, I usually have to agree, especially hardware-intensive type systems. I, I think one of the issues is that procurement money is just staring you in the face, and you have to have that lined up from years ahead. You know that you're going to have gone through that testing phase, and like when procurement money is staring you in the face, the last thing you want to do is be like, I got to push that off. So I guess some of it is just almost treating these programs by themselves and not like lining up follow-on stuff until you're ready. So you need to... For some reason, I guess there has to be like, I think the cost estimator's job becomes much easier when the funding becomes more flexible because I don't have a lock-in of the next 20 years. I can actually say, oh, I've learned something in this stage of the prototype or in this disaggregated subsystem, and now they're ready to go here, and I can cost that out relatively quickly, but will the funds be there? And like all those gaps that might occur might be the problem. So I guess the question is, do you believe funding flexibility and better cost estimating actually go hand in hand. I think so. I think the more funding flexibility does help with uh, estimating the costs. I think that's I think that's the case. That with NASA, this they have they only have one color, more or less one color of money at NASA, and, and I think that would, that would probably help with DoD. Not you know not not having those separate things broken out, or at least more cleanly broken out. Having the procurement funding come in much later, but yeah, having more flexibility I think helps with cost estimating. As we're wrapping up here, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, leave our audience with? No, I just uh, mentioned that the book is out now, the book hardcover and ebook version, uh, available through Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Amazon now has it for uh, $39. It's the price, the Walmart of online book shopping. So uh, it's out there. You uh, should check it out. You can also you know, find the on the book online. So uh, I think that was the main thing that I would like to uh, leave the readers. We've had a good discussion. I appreciate having. Appreciate you having me on, Eric. <laughs> and also, don't forget that Christian has a podcast and a blog, too. So you can find out he, he writes and uh, talks a lot about 
risk management, of course, cost estimating, actually a lot about the coronavirus as well and statistics from that. So uh, I've been kept up to date <laughs> with what's going on with coronavirus from you and on LinkedIn. So Christian Smart, thanks for joining me. And everybody, make sure you uh, pick up Solving for Project Risk Management. Thanks, Eric. Good talking to you. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.